Hello, and welcome to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of C&G Partners, Design for Culture. Today, I'm joined by Will Bullens. Will, welcome to the show. Hi, Jonathan. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Awesome to have you. So to get started, for those who don't know you like I know you, could you tell our listeners who you are and what you do? Of course. So I work for a company called Electrosonic, and I'm an executive consultant, which means basically I get into conversations with our partners and our clients very early on in, in the design uh, process and talk to them about their goals and their vision and help them figure out ways to turn that vision into a reality and, and using technology specifically. So how do we use technology to facilitate an experience? What kinds of things do we need to look at in terms of schedules and budgets and really setting the table for the rest of the design and the integration to take place? So you're really in the consulting business? Yes. It is. Okay, great. Yeah, everything, yeah, everything is it's very consultative, but we're always we integrate as well. So we're always thinking about the end result. So it's not just it's not just a lot of brainstorming. While there is that, we also, uh, everything is thought through in an engineered kind of way. We, we are very creative, but we also want to make sure that what we are creating, the technical aspects that we are creating are able to actually be implemented and uh, survive in the real world. Got it. Okay. So this is, I can tell this conversation, I'm going to do some bunch of jargon watch because you've got some really cool stuff going on. I want to back up for a minute. You just said we integrate as well. So you're saying Electrosonic integrates as well. For our listeners, can you just define what integrate means? I know what that means, but I think a lot of folks might not. Yes. So it's the entire build of the project, including equipment, procurement, engineering, and the actual going to site and putting technology and equipment into the built environment. So we're building racks, we're putting up LED walls, we're throwing up projectors, we're running cable, everything that it takes to actually put this all into the built environment and then test it, commission it, train the client on it, all of that. So we design, we build, and then we service. And obviously you, at the front end, you consult. You're the consultant to help out with yes. all of that. So it goes without saying, but just for the listener, and check me, Will, if I'm wrong about this, Electrosonic is providing the technology components of the overall experiential project. You're, that's your part of the puzzle that you're doing, as opposed to a fabricator that would be building maybe scenic elements, uh, uh, whatever it might be, scriptwriters and architects and uh, content developers and whatever it might be. That's your part of the puzzle. Our piece is when we when I say design, it's technical technology design. It's design of technology systems. It's putting speakers and amplifiers and video walls and video processors and control processors. All these different pieces of technology that need to connect together to make content go from point A to point B, basically, and make it look really good and sound really good. All that hardware is what we are designing and integrating into the uh, built environment. At this point, the listeners are thinking, wow, we're going to nerd out about technology. But watch out, listeners. You will be surprised what we're actually going to talk about. But before we get into this, Will, my favorite side question I ask everybody, how did you get into this business? So I had an internship in college and or I had to get an internship rather in college. And I found this company that wanted free help basically. And I went in, in and I, I built equipment racks. I wired systems together. I cleaned, I did everything that I needed to do. I did a little bit of CAD and some little design work here and there, drafting work. But I was just there to do whatever it was that that they needed me to do, and that's what I needed to accomplish to finish my degree in, at, at college. And I really found that the industry itself was a great mixture of creative and engineering, and I've always found myself in between the two. And I realized that going down a technical design route in this industry would be a good way that I can do left brain, right brain, all of that, but also get into talking about architecture and content and experience and story 
And while those aren't my professions, I get to talk to people who are professionals in those realms. And that is part of all the fun, all the coordination that goes into it and approaching projects from different angles, depending on what the situation is, how much fabrication there is, how much technology needs to be built into the architecture itself and become part of the building. It's a lot more than just putting technical pieces together. I get to dabble in a, in a lot. That started after college and I didn't look back. Sounds like you had a lucky break there, but before that lucky break, you mentioned that this was work that you had to do to complete your college. What If someone wants to do what you're doing, how would they follow in your footsteps? Did you do a, a course of study in college that was oriented towards this, engineering or technical, or was this like a sideways hop? <laughs> you know, it's funny. So there's an industry association called Ovixa, and they are the all-encompassing education, trade show, certification committee and association for everything in the AV, professional AV industry. There's not really a college degree that you can get to to get into this industry. A lot of people are come from mechanical engineer or electrical engineer backgrounds, but a lot of people come from just sales or they, they were part of a military service and communications and things of that nature where they worked with technology in some way, shape, or form and got into this industry. There's a lot of musicians in this industry who are used to setting up their shows at venues and mixing their own sound and and doing these all sorts of things. So it's a real wild array of people who get into this industry. I studied graphic communications of all things, and it was it, it's mildly related because I was trying to figure out how to express ideas using graphics and communicating ideas using graphics. So that's tangentially related. The course that most people take nowadays, I think, are getting more into the they find that balance. Like I was saying before of, I want to do something with experience and experience design, but on the technical side, I want to make the thing happen and not just, um, tell the, the story. I actually want to put pieces together in an artistic kind of way and make the thing happen. And maybe that's a way to slide into the industry. Well, you're, you're definitely you're at the right podcast, I tell you, because when that's why I like asking that question, how did you get into the industry? If I had a dollar for every guest I've had on the show that's either a recovering musician or a recovering theater person or both who studied graphic communication and who was raised by wolves after that in terms of their figuring things out or they apprenticed without a formal apprenticeship, I'd have a lot of dollars because I think that's common. So you're in the yeah. right place. You're you're in a good place here. All right. So I always love to hear where people come from and how they get where they're going so that other people can maybe pick that route too. But today, our theme today that we're going to be talking about is experiential tech insights. This is the part where our listeners are thinking it's going to be one thing and they're going to be surprised to find out. Spoiler alert that it's going to be a little different than you think. And that's what's actually interesting. So let's get right into the, into this. As always, I know the list, but not much more. And my guest has the rest. So we're talking experiential tech insights with Will Bullens. We have six points to talk about today. As always, they're all individually great. Point number one, never use technology just to have technology. Never use technology just to have technology. When we were doing the pre-show for this and dreaming this up, we were talking about the things that you wish your clients knew when you met them for the first time before they met you, the kind of thing that you often say in your first meetings with them. So it sounds like this is one of those things. Never use technology just to have technology. Can you expand on that a little bit? What is it that you find is actually true where you have to use this to correct it? Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to say that I love the question of what would you want a client to know before you meet with them? Because everything that we do is so project specific that usually we're just sitting, listening, and then answering questions as they come up related to the project and don't really have this opportunity a lot of times to go through this of 
hey, before we're not even talking about a, a project or a design or anything, we're just talking about some points of where to go with this specific to technology. So I love the question, but never using technology just to have technology. It sounds funny coming from a, a technology professional because you would think that I want as much technology in your space as I can possibly fit in there. But technology is just a tool and it should only really be used to help facilitate experiences. It should never just be put in for the sake of being cool or flashy or anything like that. It has to be pur purposeful. Oftentimes we'll have someone come to us and say, hey, I saw this big video wall in a manufacturer's marketing, or I saw something in Times Square or in a store and I want that in my lobby and say, okay, great. What do you want to, what do you want to do with it? I'm not sure. I just want it to be big. Okay. So let's think through that together and let's talk about what people are doing as they enter the space. What kind of content you're going to be showing on this wall? Does it need any sort of interaction, whether touch or just based on movement or data? There's a lot of different ways that you can show visuals. Do we need any audio associated with it? How often is it going to be updated to, to remain fresh? And how are we going to go about that? And oftentimes, if they don't have the answer to that, we point them to a partner and say, we need to talk about your story first and the experience uh, before we start putting technology in. Technology isn't cool unless there's a good experience or good content behind it that really runs everything. So just because you see something that is big and flashy and could be impressive doesn't mean that it's the necessary tool for whatever experience you're trying to put together. So that's always number one is experience and story are everything. And we're just here to interpret that into a technical vision and, and facil help facilitate your experience. So because I've got you here in the hot seat, I'm, I got a couple of follow-ups on this one because I think it's a great point. What's amazing to me is that in your role, you would say this, we also say it, but like you started out saying, you would think that you would not. So one question is, because this is our first point, it seems like often people are coming to you with the reverse of this advice. This is advice you wish your clients knew when you first talked to them already and you didn't have to say it. So that's telling me that often the reverse is true. So they're often essentially doing technology for the sake of technology. As you just said, I saw this in Times Square. I saw this in a store. I want one. Make it bigger than those other guys or something like that. So my one question is, roughly how often do you have people meeting with you for the first time who do have a technology for technology's sake idea? No, they haven't thought about the story. They just they want the thing as a, almost like a gadget. How often is that true? Is that half the time, a third of the time, 95% of the time? <laughs> what do you experience in the field? It's less than half the time for sure. I think the majority of the time, someone is coming to us with part of a story or experience in mind based around the technology. And that I think is the kicker is that the story shouldn't be, the experience shouldn't be based around the technology that you've seen. The technology should be based around your experience. But even if they, even if you think you have the experience in mind, we'll just want to have that conversation to make sure that we understand what you're trying to do and verify that the technology that you have in mind is even going to help with that experience. And sometimes we challenge the approach and say, well, what if we do this instead? What if we think about it in this way? We hear what you're trying to do from an experience side. What if we flip it on its head a little bit and add in this other element or this other element that maybe the other site that you use as a reference didn't have, right? And they probably didn't have it for whatever purpose that was intentional for themselves, but maybe we can use data or sensors or spatial audio or something of that nature to enhance your experience in particular. You're saying most of the time, actually, so this is good news because you see 
an, an, an enormous number of uh, new clients who would like to use technology to have some experiential result. And so you can report from the field that the majority of the time, people actually do have a sense of why they're, what they're going to do with it and what the goal is or what the story is going to be. More often than not, someone's coming to you saying, hey, I saw this amazing technology in Times Square. I'd like to use it in my museum so that visitors experience swimming with the dinosaurs or something like that. They, they at least have some sense of, of that. But what you're saying is there is, not the majority of the time, but a significant number of times you are having people who do not know what they want to do with it. They just want something big. Like they just they just want a bigger TV and they don't know what they're going to see on it. I got that right. right. That's why we're. That's why this is point number one because they're. This is, you still get yeah. these. Yeah, we still get those for sure. And I think the point goes for someone who doesn't know what they want to do with it and someone who does know what they want to do with it. The point remains the same no matter what. Is that we are going to design something so specific to your space and to your experience. It's going to be tailor-made for you that we're going to make sure that it's not, that there's no fluff in it. It's going to do exactly what you want to do. And we're not just going to throw things in there just for the sake of having bells and whistles when we don't need those bells and whistles. But to answer your question, yes, we do get often, someone is just looking for inspiration and they know that they need more. They know that they need some sort of experience, but they're starting with technology and great. I love when those people come and talk to me because then I can have a broader conversation and we're starting from scratch almost. And we can get into those conversations about experience and content and what they want to do. And then I can introduce them to people who are professionals in those fields to help them even further. I love when people approach me with that because that's my job is to help them through thinking about this and thinking about what can actually help them achieve their goals. My follow-up question number two on this first point is if you would like every client to know never use technology for the sake of using technology then there must be an urgent reason you believe that what happens if the client ignores you and goes ahead with technology for its own sake what happens there's a potential of wasting their money right this technology is not cheap they could spend a lot of money on something that they don't need. Part of being a good consultant is helping people with their budgets and, and not overspending the money that they do have, or at least getting what they can or for their funds. So that's one piece. And the other piece, it just is going to, it could ruin an experience. Technology can make or break an, an experience. If there's too much, if, the, if there's too much going on and it's overwhelming, that's one thing. If there's a huge LED wall or a big projection blended or a projection mapped environment or a lot of audio overstimulating kind of thing going on, it can throw people out of balance. And don't get me wrong, I love big, huge technical systems. I love them. It's what I do every day for my job. It's what I love to design. If you want it if, and if you need it, we're here for it 100% but I don't like leading customers down that road of them thinking that they have to have it in order to have a successful experience. It's okay. a tool and used in the right way, it can be successful whether big or small. And also the content for it. Sometimes the bigger it is, the more expensive the content is going to be. And also you wanna refresh that content. So if that content isn't refreshed, or it goes off, it you know, breaks or goes off sometimes and becomes stale, then it becomes this boring thing that people don't really prefer, they don't engage with, and now it looks bad, right? And then they won't want to do that again in their space. So it's just not, it's not a good experience for the, for the guest, and it's not a good experience for the client either. Okay. What happens if they ignore your point number one? A, you'll waste all your money. B, you'll ruin the experience. And C, your content will go stale. Okay, I think we've established that people need to obey your rule number one. That's excellent. All right, let's get to rule number two because it's very closely related. Uh, or at least it, it looks like it to me. 
and we were talking around this just a minute ago, but rule number two, Will's rule number two is be clear about your true goals. When you say goals, what do you mean? Is that a metric? Is that a number? This experiential technology is going to allow me to have 500,000 people learn this message or this experiential technology will replace my previous thing at a cost savings of X. What are What constitutes a true goal when you're making an experiential technology decision like this? It's a really a number of things. It's a lot. And it is really dependent on the customer and their environment. It could be all of the things that you just said. It could be based on timeline. It could be based on budget. It could be all of those all mixed together. A lot of it for this one though is about their vision and what they want to have happen, what they want the experience to be. So if I can understand what their true vision is and if on the days after the the project is implemented and, and it's all working and guests are coming through, what does success look like to them? Is it dwell time? Is it how many people see the screen or pass through? What is, how do we measure success? What is your goal? What are we trying to achieve? And then that'll help me figure out what kind of technology can either enhance that or help with it. So it sounds like that's a question that you'll ask up front. How do we measure success? I, I think in, in, in my business and what I do, I've noticed that too often that question actually isn't asked or to put it in a different way. The question is asked, but never answered truly. That's why I like the word true in your statement. Be clear about your true goals. I think I'm talking a little off script here, but do, do you ever notice that one goal might be stated but there's actually a slightly different goal that's not stated and maybe it's assumed to be understood or maybe not. In other words, the goal is, I'd like to use my random example. I, I want people to understand what it was like in the prehistoric oceans. They may think this. It actually is like that. Our paleontologists have some new discoveries. But actually, there's another reason that somebody wants to do it. There could be different reasons for different people. The executive in, let's say, a museum might want this maybe because they just want the place to look fresh and cutting edge and paleontologist might want it because it's going to communicate something to a new generation. What do you find is the case there? Is it, do you find that sometimes there's multiple goals, like conflicting ones, and sometimes you never really get a straight answer? For sure, there are multiple goals. Of course, there's always multiple stakeholders on these projects and everyone has a different line of sight and, and is wanting to achieve a different thing. And that is totally acceptable and normal. I wouldn't say that people purposely don't talk about their goals or don't share anything. I, I wouldn't say that they do that on purpose, but it's more of not knowing how important it is. So historically, the technology side has come in last. We get there last and we try to fit our stuff in as best as possible. And a lot of times it's very hard because a lot of decisions have already been made but if we can understand goals from all sides, it's actually beneficial because now we can help everyone achieve those goals. And I know it sounds crazy because it's just, it's just technology, right? Like how could it actually help achieve those different people's goals? But the technology really, like I've been saying, is the facilitator of that experience. We can use people counting and sensors or cameras to collect data if data is important for people. You know, your content is also important if people go and touch it or scan a code and then it brings them to something else and they purchase something, you can collect ROI data on that as well. So understanding all of these things, what we don't want is at the end of a project, one, one person says, this is fantastic that kind of thing and then a couple of more groups are sitting there scratching their heads going why does it look like this this isn't what i thought it was gonna do or see or i'm not getting anything from this system but if we know these things in advance we can make it happen so it's not it's not your Rule number two is be clear about your true goals, and there's an S at the end of that. So the presumption is there's usually more than one. 
you made right. the point that this, these technology purchases are, are especially in your area, because you're talking about LED walls, and big scale projections, and immersive audio, and you brought up sensors, and you brought up data tracking and all this stuff. As one might expect, these can be very expensive purchases. They also have an enormous return on investment. They, they do very powerful things for people. Therefore, I guess what you're saying is, because they're such a big thing, they do accomplish more than one goal. And maybe it's your job to ferret out what they all are, like the different people around the table. They might all, they might all have different goals, and the answer is yes, they do. We're going to accomplish all yeah. of them. Yeah, and, and I, we really we don't just think about, back to point number one, we don't even think about technology just for technology's sake. We are an advocate for our clients' project. We want it to be successful. If it's not, we fail and we don't get to continue. We want all parties to feel like this is for them and that they have succeeded whenever this thing opens. Right. Yeah. It sounds a little bit like I have a, I've had and still have a few clients in the higher education space and they, there's a catchphrase there that they use student success or student success outcomes. Colleges, universities are very interested. No kidding in a successful outcome of study. The students are meant to come out, graduate, and go on to great success. And the colleges are just mindful that they're not there just to have a student be there and then leave. So it sounds like to some degree, you're also sort of a client success manager or something like that. Again, it goes back to the point, like if these decisions aren't made right, you're going to waste all the money, ruin the experience, and have the content go stale. And so right. you're there up front to, to avoid that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I wouldn't say that we're responsible for everything, right? We're not an owner's rep. We're not a storytellers. So we're not fully responsible for it. But I think if everybody who's in this mix, fabricators, content developers, storytellers, technologists, et cetera, if everyone takes on the thought of, I'm, I am partly responsible for the success of all these different stakeholders and individuals. So let me do my part to bring success to them. If we all do that, then what's left at the end of the day. Success all around, right? So speaking of the end of the day, your point number three is interesting. Point number three is growing pains are normal after opening. <laughs> and we've been talking yeah. about the beginning of a project. Now you're thinking about the end of it or thinking at the very beginning of a project, how to advise your clients at the very end. So what is that? What do you, what does that mean? What are you seeing? What do you mean by growing pains? after opening and why is it that that's normal yeah so going from design on paper and specification sheets and whiteboards and story frames and all sorts of things <laughs> is one thing but going going from that to the built environment things change when you're there and then when you're in person you get to see it from a different perspective than you were when it was all on paper or in CAD, right? When you're there, when you're using it, when you see people using yeah. it and what they do, it's hard. We can anticipate what guests are going to do pretty good at it. We, this entire industry of creators are pretty good at it, but you just never know exactly what you're going to get when it gets put in and you're, you need time to study what people are doing, what they like, what they don't like, what makes sense to them, what's confusing. You need to allow yourself a grace period to really focus in on that and understand that making changes or revisions to a system or an exhibit is it's okay to do that. The sphere in Las Vegas, which is all over social media and very cool looking, opened up recently. And at the first U2 show, they were making live adjustments to the sound system in real time. These are like real pros making adjustments to their sound system because it had never been filled with thousands of people. And so sound all of a sudden, it was different than what they had tested it for. And they definitely knew that was going to happen, but they were ready for it and they were ready and they were able to adjust in real time to make it sound great with all of those additional bodies providing a different acoustic level. In the space. I, had, I had a little betting pool with myself about how long we were going to get into this conversation before one of us <laughs> said the sphere. 
So how I did was, finally uh, talk about technology? No, I was. I, I thought it was going to happen within the first 30 seconds. That's wild yeah. that they were actually adjusting it in real time. But it makes sense because I'm not even going to explain this fear to the listeners. I assume everybody who's listening to this has seen video of that. It was everywhere. Uh, or perhaps have attended it. That would not be nice. But the the idea that you wouldn't know how the audio works in a spherical venue intended for 18,000 people to be in it until you have 18,000 people in it makes all the sense in the world because human bodies absorb sound. Exactly. And they, and make they sound. were prepared. Yeah, they were prepared. They could probably estimate as as much as possible, but we all know how things change when you actually get into the space. I used an example recently, which leads to another example about going on a trip and you can read TripAdvisor, you can Google everything that you possibly can, and you can line up all of your dinner reservations and your the things that you're going to experience when you go on this trip. And then you get there and something random happens, or you have a conversation with someone and they lead you to a different restaurant than you were planning to go to. And you have a cool local experience that you never would have had had you just relied on the internet. It's a completely different feeling. It's why we travel. It's not the same when you just look at it on the internet, right? So it's really, you can prepare as much as possible, but watching people and studying people when it actually exists helps you make your space even better and even more successful. So I just say, allow yourself the grace period for it. And the expectations are everything. If you expect it to be done and dusted on opening day, you're just going to be disappointed. And so if you allow that expect, or if you have that expectation, allow that grace period and you allow a little bit of a budget or a schedule after opening, there's not much to be upset about because you already planned for it. You're already expecting that. I can't, as a recovering musician, I can only imagine, I'm glad I was not in the audio crew the first day that U2 was actually performing live to 18,000 paying people adjusting the audio on the fly while Bono is singing or whatever. No yeah. pressure. No, no pressure. pressure. It's only the most no. pressure any audio crew has ever experienced yeah. in their lives. I think that thing cost $2 billion literally to build. Yeah. Crazy. But I wanted to ask the growing pains thing. We've had guests on the show talk about prototyping for example, in several, actually several guests have talked about this, you know, what's the process? And in other situations, we would say, oh, part of an exhibition or experience, we're not sure if children will be able to reach that far over to spin that. So let's prototype it. We'll put, we'll build a quick one and we'll try it out to see if kids can do it. Okay, good. But I think what you're getting at here is the kind of projects you're involved in, like the sphere, the scale of it, and the unique combination of the final technology, the space itself, the content you're seeing, and most importantly, the actual visitors behaving like actual visitors. There's no way to prototype it completely except for the thing itself. And therefore, when you say growing pains, it's almost like opening day is kind of a prototype. Am I it kind really of, is. A, I just scared myself by saying that, but <laughs> is that kind of what we're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree. You can mock up an exhibit and make sure that everything is reachable and ADA compliant and looks good and that kind of thing. But once you get people flowing through an entire building and different age groups coming through and different times of day, even with different people coming in at different times of the day, it all changes a little bit. And I think that most people probably understand that, that you got to the work's not done just because you open. You got to continue to build and continue to innovate. But I think just being nice to yourself and allowing that grace period eases the, the stress that opening day can cause. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm learning so much. I'm scaring myself. Okay. Let me do a quick station identification. If you're just joining, you're listening to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger. And this is a project of C&G Partners, Design for Culture. If you find this show valuable, please help spread the word. You can rate the show in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And in Apple Podcasts, you can also write a review. Give that a shot if you want. Or you can just tell a friend to check out makingthemuseum.com 
for everything about this podcast and the related newsletter. Now, back to the show. Today, we are talking with Will Bullens about experiential tech insights. Next up is number four. We have six insights. We've done the first three. We're in the home stretch. Number four experiential tech insight is sustainability is a thing. Sustainability is a thing. So here I think we're talking about the fact that you can talk about sustainability in technology. And like any anything else, it has a sustainability dimension. Or I'm guessing that's right. Have I got that right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's important to us. And again, it goes, everything leads back to point number one about not putting technology in for the sake of technology, not overdoing it when you don't need to overdo it. But we care about sustainability, which is counterintuitive to someone who designs things that have to plug in and have to have power provided. But sustainability is really important. We like to use things that are going to last a long time. Seeing things, equipment torn out and thrown away and replaced is not a fun experience because where did it go? So we want to make things that last a long time or able to be reused. Even if an exhibit is taken down, maybe we can reuse some of those components that make that exhibit for another one, right? We also even get into the manufacturing processes of the manufacturers that we use for all this technology. Should have mentioned in the very beginning, Electrosonic does not actually make anything. We don't make products. We don't make hardware. We use hundreds of different vendors, manufacturers that do make this stuff and we piece it all together. So we take a look at the manufacturing processes of these vendors and try to understand their sustainability practices and what they're doing to make the world a cleaner place. And we also like to be part of the conversation of just listening to the architect or the designers or the client about what their sustainability goals are. And then we can do our own calculations. If they, if they tell us that they're trying to hit a certain threshold, then we're sitting there saying, okay, great. This is how much what you're asking for. This is how much power it's actually going to take. That leads us to being able to make a decision about whether to scale down or, okay, we have a little bit more room, right? We can go up from here if you want to add more to it. It's tricky to get all of this if we're doing that shortly before everything needs to be installed. It has to be done early on. We have to understand what those goals are early in the process so that we can do it. Other ways that we go about this is to use, to be technical, to get into the tech side of it, we use virtual control systems. And these systems are basically a number of different systems that historically would take their own box to, to run. And we put them in the server in a virtual environment and run it all through one piece of equipment. And then just using the cloud to, to connect it all. We use AI to make adjustments to building systems. It's the same with uh, HVAC and, and lighting as, as well, but we can control all of that through the AV system so that the during certain times of day, depending on the ambient light coming in the space, maybe the LED wall gets a little brighter or, or darker rather. If it's nighttime, it's definitely going to get darker. It's going to save energy just by being darker. So we're really using um, the environment to make decisions, but using AI to do that so that someone doesn't have to sit there and manually do it. It just it keeps it at a, at a good power consumption kind of threshold. Um, same thing with heat. These A lot of these technical systems produce a lot of heat. And so if the building itself is getting too hot and the HVAC or the air conditioning needs to pop on, then maybe we tone down the, the system just a little bit just for that part of the day. Um, while that might affect the overall experience, we're not, I'm not saying turn everything off. I'm not saying shut it down, just tone it down just a little bit so that it doesn't get so hot in the space and, and when we can reserve some power, we're not going to solve all the world's problems by doing any of this, but at least it helps. It goes part of, it goes into the ecosystem of all the these different pieces and parts that it takes to create 
something in the built environment and it at least helps with that effort. The if we're talking about museums, and we are a little bit here, obviously a museum as a thing is already requires more power than other types of buildings. The lighting systems, the cooling and climate control systems that are necessary in both in storage and display areas for certain kinds of museums are do take up a lot of energy. They take up more energy than other kinds of facilities. Like you say, it's happening. The goal is to try to make it as, as beneficial as possible. I'm, I'm wondering, I'll put you on the spot a little bit. Let's see how this goes. If I were a client and I was interested in having my technology last as long as possible, what would be some tricks or tips that you might give them? So I'm reacting just to what you said before about the using things that will last for a long time or reusing components later. But if, let's say we're going to put in a huge LED wall, which I know you do do that a lot. A lot of people are doing that a lot right now. What are some ways that you would tell them that you that this creature, this thing could last for a long time and make it less disposable? Because that's one of the key things about sustainability. Just keep it. Keep using it. Don't yeah. throw out your shoes. Just keep wearing them and you're good. Yeah. I'll start to answer that question without using even technology, this content. So your content production, if you keep it, if you keep your content refreshed, your LED wall won't get boring. It'll stay exciting. If it's the same, if people are walking through the same thing every single day, you're going to probably want to refresh your space sooner than if it's the content on there is constantly changing and being interesting. So that's one piece. On the technical side, LED walls, professional level LED walls are rated to last a hundred thousand hours to get just down to half brightness. So that's being on full bright hundred thousand hours. That's like 11 years of 24 seven use. That's a very long time. So LED just in itself, it's a big investment early on, but it's probably going to outlast any exhibit or space or be able to be reused even if a certain space is redesigned you can just keep using that led wall for quite some time but just quickly calculating what you just said you said 11 years of 24 7 use i guess some led walls would be used 24 7 you know i don't know i'm thinking of a casino right, yeah. where they want people to ever leave uh around the yeah. clock or um i don't know a, a, a hotel a a uh, mission critical control room or something like that but in the sort of cultural destination world most of those places are not operational uh, more than you know, 10 12 hours a day so your 11 years would become 22 years or would become <laughs> right. 33 years if it were eight hours a day instead of 24 so that's a long time that's pretty interesting and for the listeners you said that's the half-life right in other words these components and this equipment will be as bright as be, that they're able to be a certain brightness when they come out of the box originally. And your 100,000 hours is the point at which they lose half their brightness. Not that they explode or disintegrate like right. Mission Impossible. They're still mm -hmm. working just at half the brightness. And it could be that the clients only had it turned on to half the brightness originally. Right. So, so it's like 66 that, years every, now. <laughs> everything that you're saying plays into it lasting for probably longer than the exhibit or the space will last. Are we at the point where with screens there was a time with personal electronics where resolution was an issue? But now mobile phones, etc., everything is at retina level or beyond, meaning retina means they're at the point where you can no longer distinguish pixels. It's no longer about that. It's really about the content, etc. Are we at that point with LED? It depends on how far away you are from it. And that's the whole deal with LED. And I want to go back to your question of, that you had a moment ago. I think we're, it was about to lead to a, a different point, but to answer this one first, LED comes in different pixel pitches, which to the pixel pitch is the distance between center to center of each individual LED. So you hear people talk about a 1.2 or a 0.9 or a 1.5, 2.5, what have you. You go to a, a football game and you see the big jumbotron that is a wide pixel pitch the, the pixels are 
far apart from each other because they're so far away, you can't tell that they're far apart from each other. The closer you get to the wall, the closer those little pixels need to be so that you can't see that they're actually separated. It's the same with the TV. It's just those pixels are tiny and they're very close together, right? On, on your living room TV. Yeah. If you put so, your eyeball right up next to your you iPhone can, screen and right. you can focus that close, you would see the little dots for sure. Yeah. So for an LED wall, we always, part of our job is to figure out, okay, where's the audience? How far away are they? So that we can make a good recommendation of what pixel pitch is required for this sort of scenario. We're not just going to put a 0.9 or a 0.7 millimeter wall in every single space because it's just not necessary for, and it's too expensive for every single space. What is your side question? What is your formula for how far away from a wall you should be? I use a formula that was taught to me by, I don't even remember who taught me this, but it's the rule of eight. So you take the millimeter rating and you multiply by eight and make it feet. So if you're looking at a one millimeter pitch wall, that means that the little dots that make up the LED are one millimeter apart. That's a pretty fine pitch, teensy-weensy. But you will be able to see those dots and that might, might or might not compromise your experience if you are closer to that wall than eight feet. One millimeter gets you eight feet. Other people use a different rule. What's your rule? That is a good, that is a good rule. Some people use 10, a factor of 10. Some people use... 1.5 meters times the pixel pitch. <laughs> so it's all over the place. I think eight to 10 rule is pretty safe for the majority of people. Not everyone is walking around with 2020 vision. And also other factors go into it of how big the wall is. The bigger the wall is, the, the less you're going to see the pixels because there's at this point so many of them that your eyes get uh, overwhelmed to the point where your eyes are stitching it all together. Do you know, speaking of, and then we, we'll get to our next point, but the sphere, do you know what the pixel pitch of the interior LED tiles for the sphere is? Interior, I can't remember if it's interior or exterior, but one of them is nine inches. I think the exterior is like nine inches. That makes sense. Yeah, because it's meant to be seen from a plane. You're not supposed to be like, put your nose to it. I hope people don't quote me on that, but I think that is close to being The point is that the further away you are, the more coarse the image can be, and you still perceive it. All of this goes back to the point that we're discussing, and the point that we're discussing is about sustainability. And here we're talking about making whatever major product that you purchase last as long as possible. And one of those factors is to make sure that it doesn't look old. It doesn't look like the equivalent of a old CRT television set. It exceeds the point at which you can see the individual pixels. That means you don't see that anymore. That means you can't detect the age of the technology and therefore it'll last for a long time. I think a little bit of nerding out is a good thing to do, but let's get to point number five. And your point number five is discuss fears, budgets, and timeframes openly and often. Fears. Well, you, yeah. it sounds like you. It sounds like we're getting on the couch here. What do you mean by this? And have you had situations where those haven't been discussed openly and often? So, what I mean is, I love building relationships with the people that I work with, and I think that it's important when you're doing work like this. It helps you understand each other, provides some level of empathy. You provide you understand where people are coming from when they're making decisions. And the fear part is, help me understand what's missing and what, if any, holes exist in this plan or design. And it'll help me understand back to what your goals are, right? If I understand what you're worried about, then I can, whatever I can do in, in my expertise and my part to, to knock those fears out, we can do. But if we don't know them, if we don't have these in-depth conversations and these friendly relationships, it's hard to be totally successful because we just don't know where we're aiming. What What are right? some of the fears that you've heard people have? I think maybe we talked about at the very start that you're going <laughs> to 
uh, waste all your money, uh, yeah. ruin your experience, and have your content go stale. But what what other kind of fears do, do, do people have when they're talking to you? It's all of that. So budget, it could be schedule. It could be how much work this actually takes from an architectural standpoint. It's just a renovation or we're like fixing something or adding on to something, an existing exhibit. We don't want to tear the whole thing down just in order to rebuild. If there's some reason why they're like, we cannot touch this piece or this part of it, right? I've been told explicitly we cannot touch this piece or I'm afraid of spending too much money if this technology is going to cause a lot of rework or destruction, right? I want to know that so that I can design and specify something that is easier to install or something that works to, again, facilitate that experience that isn't going to ruin something else. And it goes back to just being all open, understanding people's goals, all the stakeholders' goals, but it's just a little bit more in depth. It's just a more of an honest conversation um, about, hey, what are we missing here? What do you feel is missing? Are there any holes in this plan? Um, what are you worried about? And if not anything, then great, right? That's the goal. Do you ever find that, are there ever fears that, how do I put this? Fears that the client doesn't realize they should have. You mentioned something earlier in our conversation about heat load, for hey. example. So I've noticed when we're working on projects that involve technology like you're talking about that it's not innately obvious to folks that a really big LED wall like in the sphere, look, we're talking about the sphere all the time now, uh, that or whatever, my pleistocene sea swimming LED, whatever it might be, that those generate heat, right? They all put heat. Per square inch, they output less heat than you would think, actually. But they do output heat. Is that something that people don't realize going in and you have to remind them? And are there other things like that? Little things that, like, don't forget to take into account blank? Absolutely. A huge part of my job in these early conversations is feasibility and laying out what what is possible, what is not given the budget or time constraint facility kind of impact a really big part of this is having those conversations of okay if you want to put this huge led wall up in your space it's going to produce this amount of heat and you're going to need structural support to hold it on the wall and this is how heavy it is and you're also going to need this goes into budgeting but you're also going to need power for it and you're going to need conduit to run cables and that's all infrastructure and that's what I was mentioning in the beginning of this chat of, yes, we're in creative world and we're brainstorming, but I'm always thinking about the actual engineering and implementation. And I'm never going to throw an idea to a client without letting them know what the reality is of how much infrastructure some of this could potentially take because it has to be considered because it's, it costs money. The, the technology is not the only thing that costs money here. Construction costs, running cables costs. So I'm not doing my job. I'm not doing my job well if I provide a budget and then the client is surprised that they have to have construction work to get it done or a, a certain level of construction work to get it done. They have to know these things going into it. Sounds a little parallel to, I have some friends who are in the different parts of the electric vehicle world. And someone was telling me recently about a situation where a, a trucking company came to them and said, we want to replace all of our trucks with electric long haul trucks. They said, that's fine. But do you know how much electricity you're going to need in your garage overnight <laughs> for your entire fleet? And they calculated right. what that is. And they said like, whoa. Where are we going to get that kind of electricity? And the answer was, in, in your municipality, nowhere. Yeah, feasibility. You brought up the word feasibility. Some, in other words, yeah. implicit in that idea is sometimes an idea is actually not feasible. Like you, no. the floor will not support that. Or the electrical power that you have uh, available is not available for this. Thing. Right. 
That's exactly right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not one to just come into a meeting and say, no, I want these things to happen for the customer. I want the client to be able to do what they want to do with the space. Back to being an advocate about the project. I really like this stuff. I want to see it happen, but I have to be real about it and set the scene for what it's actually going to take so that they don't run into problems later on because then that's just that's worse right so don't like to say no but usually it's a yes but let's think about the whole picture here and we're going to stay creative and stay brain brainstorming but we're going to think about this down the road a little bit just to set the table for that um more implementation and construction uh side of everything but at the end of the day just understanding those goals and those fears and having a, a relationship that really just helps me make better technical design decisions. And part of the creativity around all this is not just how can we make technology work? It's all right, if we can't use this much technology, how do we still make this experience work in some kind of way? Maybe it's not as big as we thought it could be because that's going to require another transformer and that's just going to cost more money on the electrical side, right? Okay. We can't do that. So what can we do instead? Or how can we, how can we change this a little bit or break up the image even to reduce some of that infrastructure requirement, but still provide something useful and something that would be a good experience. I don't think I've ever had a time where we've said, nope, we can't do that. So have a good day talk to you later. That just doesn't happen. <laughs> it's always, we can't do that. Here's the reason why. Let's talk about what we really can do so that we can get something out there that's going to be a good experience. Your sixth, our final point here, last point in our show, is also about talking and when you do it, start the discussion early, even if briefly. You mean start the discussion with you. What advantage does that get for your clients if they can talk to you way in advance, earlier than they think? Yeah, so this is a good wrap-up that 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 comes from all of these other points, really. Early conversations are helpful because, one, I might be able to raise my hand and, with a red flag or two, or considerations to make before you as a designer and client go do a month's worth of work, right? I might immediately be able to say, hey, think about this. Or, oh, I know that your goal is to be sustainable. Sorry, but this amount of something is going to take this much power. Let's think about that. And if that's going to be acceptable to you because you decrease power consumption somewhere else, then fantastic. Let's do it. But if you need to rethink it a little bit, then we start talking about back to the sustainability, give some pointers there or what, whatever the situation is, right? So early on, I can go ahead and make some uh, recommendations that'll save you from doing a lot of work and then having to be told these things a month later or whatever. Oftentimes in very early on meetings, I'll sit silently and just sit and listen and learn and start to formulate in my head what a technical direction could be. <laughs> but it seems almost silly to invite me to a meeting where I'm just going to sit there quietly, but it all helps set the table for the work that we're going to do together a little bit later. I join a lot of kind of discovering concept meetings where we're just throwing ideas at the wall to see what sticks. And that's great because we can just get crazy with technology and talk about things that could be done or answer questions depending on what the situation is. And then as that concept grows a little bit, that's when we start to get a little more detailed and I'm not, I am not here to stop something early on. I'm here to catch things that are going to be a problem later. I'm here to catch them early so that we can solve them and move forward successfully. I do not want to stop anything from happening, but I don't want to put any, I don't want anyone in, to be in the position of doing a whole bunch of work and then having someone tell them that it's going to cost way more than they thought it was going to cost or it's just going to be a hassle. So I've, I've got one last percentage question based on this because 
all of these points come from this idea of things you wish clients and other people that you talk to already knew, even before they met you. So this uh, sixth point, start the discussion early, even if briefly, obviously implicit in that is that often it is not started early enough. So my percentage question is, what percentage of the time do you find yourself thinking, I wish I had been involved a little earlier in this project. I can see it really would have been uh, beneficial. Yeah. I'll have to think about the percentage. I'm going to start by talking about more of from a his, historical standpoint. Historically, in years past, we get invited very late because technology wasn't as um, robust as it is now or as frequent, right? So the whole space would be designed and then the technology team gets brought in and say, like, hey, put this TV here and make it fit, right? Now technology does so much more than it than it used to, and it plays such a bigger role in these environments that has shifted. And so the whatever the percentage is, we are being brought in early more and more. I'd say maybe 60-40 we're being brought in early, maybe 70-30. Just it really Wait, depends which, which, on which, the, which percentage is the good one. Like your sixty percent of the time or more, you're being brought in early now. Yes. Like it's, oh, it's okay. a lot better. It's a lot better than it used to be. I tell a lot of partners that we work with, I give them the phone a friend thing. And even if you're just thinking about a concept and it's not even a project yet, I don't need to be contracted just to have a conversation with you. Let's just talk and let's talk through your concept loosely, right? And throw around some ideas and see what happens. And that's very helpful in kind of building relationships, building trust, and just having those conversations, being involved in those conversations early. Yeah. Hard to say on a percentage, 60, 40, 70, 30, something around probably. It's, it's getting better, but like last better. time, I pinned you down with a percentage question. <laughs> the answer is it used to be much worse, maybe the reverse or something like that. It's getting better, but it's still out there that people are not phoning a friend early enough to check in on some of these things where we were getting a little nerdy midway through there about pixel pitch and everything else like that. And uh, I think all of that is is going to be new to most listeners. I should be. That's yeah. totally fine. But yeah, that means can't, it can't hurt. It can always help to have a discussion earlier. Always. It, it always does. And again, because of what we do and because of the role that I play here, I am here to have a creative conversation with you and a brainstorm and talk about concepts and discovery and setting the table for the rest of the design that's going to take place. I'm not here to talk about super technical things. If you want to, just like we showed before, if you want to, we can, right? We can go down that path, no problem. But usually I'm here to be creative just like you are and throw around ideas and see what we can do. And I think historically, it has all been about ones and zeros. You call the technical person, they're going to be technical because that's all there was in years past. But now the stuff is used in such a different way, in such a creative way. And there's different shapes and form factors and all these different options, all these different things that you can add to it. Talking about centers again, things like that, that it's more than just a one and zero conversation. It's a very creative conversation backed up by years of um, system engineering and implementation that we don't really need to talk about on day one. We'll get there, but if we're starting early, at least I can start thinking about that stuff so that we can talk about it when the time is right. And it's not going to be a, oh yeah, by the way, we need to add all this power or infrastructure or whatever it is to your building. I think that's a great point to close on. So let's do a uh, quick recap here. Let's see if I get it right. Our list for today was experiential tech insights with Will Bullens. Number one, never use technology just to have technology. Number two, be clear about your true goals. Number three, growing pains are normal after opening. Number four, sustainability is a thing. <laughs> Uh, number five, discuss fears, budgets, and timeframes openly and often. And number six, 
start the discussion early, even if briefly. How would I do? What's my score? Speaking percentages, 100%. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, I think these are. this is all some news that our listeners can use. And I think for the most part, we fulfilled the promise talking about technology while not talking about technology. And for that reason and many others, it's been great to have you on the show, Will. Thank you so much for the invitation. This has been a pleasure. I love talking about this sort of thing. And if we did it for three more times, it'd probably be three different conversations. There's so much to talk about when it comes to this and how to use technology and the kinds of things to think about. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. For sure. If listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Email, website, LinkedIn? Yes, LinkedIn. And my email is will.bullens at electrosonic.com. Let's spell that. W-I-L-L dot B-U-L-L-I-N-S at electrosonic, electrosonic.com. All right. And they'll also find you under that same name, Will Bullens, on LinkedIn as well. Yes. Great. And I guess electrosonic.com is the website. Electrosonic.com is the website. Yeah, sure. Okay. Check it awesome. out. Feel free to reach out anytime. I'm here. I'm here to help. Terrific. And as always, all of these coordinates will be in the show notes. If you're out walking the dog or washing the dishes and you don't have your hands free, don't worry. We got you covered. Okay. I think we covered it. Thank you, dear listener, for your time. In exchange, I hope this episode gave you some news you can use. If you'd like to get in touch with me, or you have an idea or a guest suggestion for the show, go to makingthemuseum.com, hit contact. You can also find me on LinkedIn under Jonathan Alger, A-L-G-E-R, or at the website of my firm, C&G Partners. By the way, this podcast has an older sister. It's a one-minute newsletter under the same name. One quick insight each time for museum leaders exhibition teams, and visitor experience pros. Subscribe at makingthemuseum.com. Big subscribe button in the menu at the top. Meanwhile, I'm Jonathan Elger, and I hope you'll join me next time for Making the Museum. Bye for now.